Hello and welcome to Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. While support for action is increasing, climate change is a wicked problem that is overly complicated and the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to give voice to those who can lead the way. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, I bring you the experts and present you information, facts and interesting ideas with the odd dash of politics to spice it all up. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. In today's episode, we are making things personal. Watching the bushfires ravage Australia has left me with a sense of powerlessness that is manifested as a desperate desire to do something that can bring about relief and change. And I know I'm not alone. Millions have made donations to support bushfire relief and affected communities have been inundated with offers of support. The inherently good and practical nature of Australians has largely come to the fore. And while many people have flooded the streets protesting for climate action, people are also looking to where they can take control back in their lives. These past weeks, I have been asked countless times, Sophie, what can I do? Australians live well beyond their means when it comes to their carbon and environmental footprint. The carbon intensity of the lives we live are inherently unsustainable. We have one of the highest emission intensity per capita, well beyond the global average. Yes, government action is needed for us to do our bit to meet the Paris targets and keep warming to under 1.5 degrees. But responsibility also lies with the people. Every day, we wake up, we go to work or school, we eat, we rest and we play. Every day, we make dozens of decisions, small and large, conscious and unconscious, that have a carbon impact. While many are inbuilt and embedded into the world we live in, there is a mountain of opportunity for us to make small changes that cumulatively could make a big difference and help get Australia back on track. The purpose of today's episode is to bring to light the actions and choices that we make in our everyday lives and how we can make a difference. Following the Amazon fires, I made the personal decision to cut meat from my diet. From that, I learned that change is hard but it is also really easy once it's done. My life is far from perfect in terms of resource consumption, but I'm slowly and surely reducing my impact, one choice at a time. So what are those choices? What are the hidden and surprising carbon aspects of our lives? And what are the three things that you and I can do to steadily reduce our impact, together doing our bit for climate action? Breaking it down with us today is Dr. Kimberly Nicholas. Kim is an Associate Professor of Sustainability Science and Director of PhD Studies at the Lund University Centre for Sustainability Studies in Lund, Sweden. In her research, she studies the connections between people, land and climate. She brings climate research back to the everyday and is passionate about helping people understand the high impact choices they make in their everyday lives. Kim, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me, Sophie. Look, we might get straight into it. And given that today's episode is about making it personal, maybe if we get started by, um, if you're able to share with us, what has motivated you to do the work that you do? I think my motivation comes from the people and places that I love. So I grew up in a really beautiful part of the world, a town called Sonoma, about an hour north of San Francisco. My family has deep agricultural roots and the main 
industry in Sonoma is the wine industry. So it's it's obvious that we depend on nature and on a stable climate to provide us with food and to be able to conduct agriculture. So that kind of traces my interest, uh, plus a love of hiking and spending time outside and realizing as a teenager and then starting university, I could actually, that's the job of a scientist is to study nature and the way people and nature interact and hopefully find better ways forward that we can do that in a more sustainable way. Uh, as you may be aware, um, I think most of the world is, Australia is in the midst of a bushfire crisis, yet we are still debating climate change. There has been a surge of uh, dis and misinformation, and I personally know genuinely intelligent people who are supportive of climate action, but are still bamboozled by climate science and debates. What, in your opinion, do people need to know about climate change and climate science? Well, thanks to a lot of hard work by a lot of scientists over the years, fortunately, we can boil down what people really need to know to five simple sentences. And that is, it's warming, it's us, we're sure, it's bad, and we can fix it. So some of those things we've known for more than 100 years, the science of greenhouse gases trapping heat and warming the planet goes back to the 19th century uh, and has very long roots. There's overwhelming scientific agreement on those five points. Tons of studies and peer-reviewed literature, but that's the takeaway. And I think what's most relevant for people right now is it's bad. And I, my heart goes out to you and family and friends in Australia who are suffering through uh, climate-related and climate-worsened impacts. The human signal of climate change is worsening extreme events around the world. My family has lived through several uh, unprecedented fire seasons in Sonoma County in the North Bay Area in California. So I know how devastating that can be. And what's really important now is that as we're living and facing the consequences of the, the climate that we've been creating, that we very quickly stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So that means we stop using fossil fuels and that's gonna be a big change, but it is doable. It's technically and economically feasible and it's necessary. I think the, the way you describe it is really beautiful and simple and thank you for helping us put the science to bed. Can you walk us through your research and, and your personal philosophy and just how you go about undertaking the research that you do? Sure, so my research touches on a lot of areas, but uh, I think what we're focusing on today is on the personal impacts and high impact climate actions. That's some work that started uh, by Seth Wines and we published a paper together in 2017 where we wanted to answer a question that he was asked in his previous career as a high school science teacher, which was, what can I do about climate change? And we wanted a, a science-based answer that took all the evidence and compared actions you know, fairly apples to apples. So what we found there is that there are, what really matters for stabilizing the climate is to stop adding greenhouse gases, especially carbon to the atmosphere. Right now, the emissions are still going up and the more carbon and greenhouse gases we add to the atmosphere, the more warming we're driving, the more we're destabilizing the climate and the more suffering follows. So we know that we have to stop doing that as quickly as possible. And uh, science recently has really focused our attention on the next decade from now until 2030 is really a decisive moment for life on earth. And it's those of us who are alive now who are 
determining our future, the rest of our lives, and the fate of planet Earth for millennia to come. So it's hard to overstate how important this time is. Um, the, the actions we found that can most quickly reduce emissions that are here today are to live car, flight, and meat-free. Those are the biggest personal contributors to climate change right now, and those are part of larger systems of energy and mobility and land use and food production that we need to transform if we're going to have a, a safe and stable 21st century. So in your uh, in the communications that you put out around your research, you've rated changes in terms of impact. How did you go about calculating and evaluating what is high impact and what is medium impact and what is low impact? So we wanted to make comparisons that took everything into account, the full life cycle. So if we're talking about food production, that's growing the food, uh, farming practices, and how that affects emissions from land where the food is grown, transportation and storage, cooking, usage, waste or disposal, the whole chain. So we did that for all of the actions we could think of where we could find mostly peer-reviewed scientific data that uh, made an assessment of the total greenhouse gas impact, so the total climate impact, taking all the different gases that cause warming together in a common unit, so kind of converting them into the same currency to make a fair comparison. And that ended up being 39 studies and carbon calculators uh, for a range of actions. We focused on high emitting countries like Australia, uh, North America, US and Canada, Europe, and a few others, because that's where a lot of the emissions are today. And that's where people live lifestyles essentially that involve things like flying in planes and driving cars. Those are still globally not that common of activities. In your research, did you find that the relationships of consumption are linear or the interesting interdependencies around some choices having surprising uh, impacts on our footprint that may or may not have been um, clear? Like, are there relationships there that are surprising uh, that came out of your research? Well, most people are surprised at just how climate damaging flying is. Mm. Hour for hour, there is just no better way to wreck the climate. And many people haven't uh, realized that. But it is what we found, for example, is that you would have to avoid eating meat for two years to uh, equal the emissions of what could potentially be a long weekend flight, for example, between New York and London and back. Wow. So it's very climate polluting. Sorry, I don't have an Australian example handy, but that no. would be you know, about <laughs> an eight-hour eight flight uh, round trip. Wow, that's a really good way of making it, uh, I guess, relevant and digestible and understandable to the everyday person. Uh, are you able to explain just how, um, why that that long haul travel is more impactful than short haul travel? I know this might be tough for Australians <laughs> to, to <laughs> swallow because I realize that you are uh, surrounded by a lot of ocean and far from other places. But um, it is the case that it just takes a lot of energy to keep people and a plane up in the air. Overcoming gravity is uh, energy intensive. And the longer you fly it, it really does add up enormously. Um, so as you said, you know, it, it scales such that a long one long haul flight um, has, for example, I have cut my own flying about 90%. I stopped flying within Europe where I live in 2012 uh, and I'm trying to be flight free, but I face the challenge that 
I took a tenure track. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry, Freudian slip. I took a tenure track uh, faculty position as an as a professor in 2010 before I had really internalized the urgency of the climate crisis myself personally, and mm. before I had really thought about the carbon impact of the choice of living across an ocean from my family and oldest friends in California. So you know, the distance between Sweden and, and California is, is substantial. Mm -hmm. um, that said, my so that one flight a year that I am still taking back to North America is about three tons of carbon, and that's more than a whole year of sustainable emissions. I should be able, if we're going to stabilize the climate um, below or around 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, that's the aim of the Paris Agreement, and we know that makes a huge difference for life on Earth and for vulnerable communities. That the faster we can stop emitting and the lower the temperature we stabilize at the more life will look like something we recognize um, and continue to have a good life. Uh, so to do that, you know, I'm, I'm over-consuming my carbon budget even with that one flight a year. Yeah, and that's a great segue to another question. Do you think that it's helpful to think about having a personal CO2 budget? And if so, what, would, what should our um, target be in terms of our annual budget? I do think it's helpful and it's useful. I think it, it's a good tool and a good place to start. It's not where we should stop because we certainly also need policies and incentives to make that um, personal budget feasible and affordable and, and universal. But that said, there's some recent work that came out last year um, by Alto University that translated what's been focus on at the global level of this carbon budget, the amount of carbon we can safely burn, uh, which is basically no more or as little, uh, we really need to just stop as fast as possible. So it translated that carbon budget for stabilizing the climate at 1.5 degrees into a personal budget. And it's shockingly little, it's 2.5 tons per person per year. And as I said, uh, I know that the you know, that would be already one long haul flight would more than use that up using today's technologies and and uh, and emissions levels. So Australia right now, I believe, is around 20 tons per person per year. So that's something like a 85 percent reduction in the next 10 years. We're talking about big changes, but it is doable. And there are people who are leading the way and showing that it's possible. Maybe we'll take a little bit of a segue because coming back to the reason uh how I came across your research is I was actually researching for an episode on understanding how your carbon paw print and the environmental impacts of pet ownership um, can be calculated and understood. And that's where I stumbled across some of your research and went into a rabbit hole on your website and it was great. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, understanding the carbon paw print, I, th I think that's a, a cute way to think about some of the potentially like invisible um, decisions we make in our life. Um, there was a, a book that came out in New Zealand in 2009 that claimed that dog ownership caused more environmental damage than owning an SUV. I've got two questions about that one. Is it really as simple as that or are there more complexities to calculating your carbon footprint? And just how significant is pet ownership from a carbon impact point of view? Well, I have to say, at the time we published our study where we comprehensively looked at this, we own, we found two studies on pet ownership and the, the carbon footprint of pet ownership, and they, they didn't agree with each other, and we therefore didn't include it as a high impact to climate action. There has been some more work that's come out since that it does look like uh, pet ownership has at least a 
what we would say a medium climate impact. Um, and the reason for that is the meat that we feed our pets. So there's basically two main causes of climate change today. It's burning coal, oil, and gas, fossil fuels, which are carbon-based, that carbon gets in the atmosphere and traps heat and causes warming. And the second cause, that's about 75% of the warming that we're experiencing. The second cause is from land use. And land use is primarily driven by agriculture. And within agriculture, uh, by far the biggest environmental footprint, carbon as well as water and land use and pollution comes from animal agriculture, especially beef. Hmm. So basically, that those are the two main causes of, of climate change, human-caused climate change that we're experiencing today. So the reason pet ownership uh, does have a substantial climate impact is because pets eat a lot of meat. Uh, there was a study that showed that about a quarter of the meat in the U.S. went to feed pets. And because meat is such a, a high-impact uh, product to make, that adds up to some substantial climate emissions. Mm, I think... Um, but Sorry, but, yeah. but that said, I would add that um, I haven't seen a direct comparison between pet ownership and SUV, but I haven't seen that direct comparison between the emissions from pet ownership and an SUV. But I would be very surprised if that's the case, because what our study did show is that um, for, on average, across uh, industrialized, highly developed countries, which we studied, it was much higher impact to drive a car for a year than to eat meat for a year. Mm. So for a per- an, a, an animal generally eats less uh, of course, than a person. So I would expect that for your household decisions, it is higher impact to certainly go car free or to switch to the most efficient and ideally emissions free car that you can. And one of the things that I liked about delving into the pet ownership issue was that, well, yes, there's the carbon impact of um, meat for feeding your dog. The there's also an, an offset in the sense that people who own dogs are less likely to um, travel internationally and more likely to do lower carbon impact activities like walking. So, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That was something that we weren't able to take into account in our study because that hasn't been consistently addressed, these sort of rebound effects or uh, changes in consumption pattern as sort of a, a knock-on effect of the original change. So, for example, um yeah, what people use if they have more money or they save money from energy efficiency, for example, but then use that money to buy a plane ticket, that's definitely wiping out all the emission mm. savings that they otherwise would have had. Um, but that is an, a challenge to study. So we didn't have a consistent measure for it. So I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't seen firm numbers on, you know, pet ownership behavior and how that ultimately affects the final emissions. And that's why we focused on these kind of clear, simple messages that were um, clearly upheld across all the scenarios and all the countries we looked at that for sure, if you can go car, flight and meat free, that has a big impact on the climate. And the closer you can get to that with strongly reducing those things, if you can't avoid them, makes a big difference. I like it. Clear, simple and easy to understand. Um, in terms of what you mentioned before around the impact of land use and, and food production, if we then look to sort of diet and understanding how our dietary choices can uh, affect our climate footprint, you know, last year I made the move to pescatarian purely due to climate motivations. 
Just how much of a difference do you think that's made to my carbon footprint? That does make a big difference. A lot of studies now have shown the biggest uh, climate difference from diet is first cutting out beef. So if you if that's the one thing you can do, um, that's the place to start. After that, other sorts of meat and animal products, dairy and cheese, unfortunately, is also pretty high footprint. Um, but beef is just in a class of its own. It, it is so much more resource and climate intensive than everything else. Uh, so there are studies that have directly compared, for example, a pescatarian diet with, uh, so where you do eat fish as well as, um, you know, eggs and uh, dairy products, but not meat, that does have a substantially lower about as much as half as much emissions uh, from an, an omnivorous, or at least comparing with a high meat diet, which is often uh, pretty common these days in countries like Australia. Yeah, wow. So I can essentially half my carbon footprint in terms of my dietary consumption by cutting out red meat. You get close to that. That's definitely the biggest win. I mean, yeah, wow. going all the way to an entirely plant-based diet, completely vegan, where you don't have any animal products is the absolute best for the environment, but the gains are much less compared with, you know, the biggest step is cutting out red meat and then looking at dairy products and cheese and animal, other animal products like chicken, for example. So it's kind of stepwise, but there's uh, the World Resources Institute has some nice graphs on this that make these comparisons really clear if you want to get into the the nitty gritty. And I, I have a few resources on my website. I can send the link. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. And I can include those in the uh, episode notes uh, on the website. So if people are interested in following up, then they can do that. Um, you all already answered my next question, which is really around um, my husband's just gone. Um, he's done a double down. He's gone to a fully plant-based diet that has, um, what I'm hearing there is that has a, a significant step change again for those who are wanting to reduce their impact. Is that correct? It is definitely the absolute lowest in terms of emissions to have a completely plant-based diet. Um, but as I said, you know, the, the biggest difference comes from reducing overconsumption of animal products, to put it that way. I mean, mm. a lot of studies recently have shown it's very common in countries like Australia and other um, Western countries to greatly overconsume the recommended level of meat for health reasons as well as environment reasons. And this is something that's reflected in Sweden's uh, dietary guidelines from our official food agency, basically, that says, you know, reduce consumption of red meat, um, mostly from a health perspective. There's mm. been work that's shown if, if people, we could have pretty substantial emission savings, something on the order of 20% less emissions from diet if people actually followed the dietary recommendations of their country. But, you know, we know that we eat too much <laughs> sugar and, uh, and processed foods. And from a climate perspective, especially the animal products is what's causing most of the emissions. Yeah. So uh, change of tack. Uh, last year, we made the shift to an electric vehicle. I love it. It's the best thing ever. But suddenly, okay. all these haters have come out. And um, oh, no. <laughs> I'm apparently I'm an environmental vandal because of the lithium battery. Um, yeah. So, you know, what's my defense to the haters? How do I weigh up the pros and cons of an, uh, of an electric vehicle? Um, and how do I, how do I defend myself the next time I get, um, you know, <laughs> get charged as an environmental vandal? Oh, 
boy, the world needs fewer haters, doesn't it? <laughs> um, well, you can rest assured that an electric vehicle does have lower climate impact than a gas-run vehicle. I mean, cars today are machines to turn fossil fuels into climate pollution. That is what they do. So, I mean, that's you, most people's most direct contact with fossil fuels on a daily basis is going to the gas station and filling up your car's tank. That's a fossil fuel that you're putting in, in there and, and burning to get around and directly is going into the atmosphere. So, um, our study showed on average, it was about half as much climate pollution to switch from a typical gasoline vehicle to a electric vehicle. And that is a life cycle analysis that takes into account the carbon or the climate cost of mining the lithium, for example, producing and then eventually recycling the batteries. So from a climate perspective, it is better. Um, I can say that in Australia, you have another problem, which is you use a lot of coal to generate your electricity. So in my defense, you know, we know that, yeah. <laughs> in my defense, um, all of my charging sources are from new renewable energy. So it is. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. I'm really lucky in that uh, we receive um, free and green charging in the city of Sydney. Love the city of Sydney. Oh, super. Um, my other charging point is in Canberra, and Canberra is essentially um, 100% renewable energy. So <laughs> personally. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, but it is not, uh, you are definitely right. Um, in general, uh, in terms of electricity supply in Australia, we are very, uh, coal intensive. Um, but personally, I'm really excited that I get to drive a vehicle of the future and that is a zero emissions vehicle. Um, but thank you for helping me in building up my defense of, against the haters. <laughs> Maybe you can unite with them in the need to switch from a coal base to a 100% clean energy grid. I mean, everywhere in the world needs to do that, but Australia especially urgently. And it's just incompatible with stabilizing the climate to still be investing in and building out fossil-based infrastructure like coal mines and exporting. So that's a really urgent priority for countries like Australia and others that are, are still actually using that very old <laughs> and dirty fuel source. Yeah, and, you know, the the silver lining for me uh, in terms of the bushfire situation here in Australia is that I genuinely feel like there is a shift in the conversation. We're finally ready to start having some of these tough conversations. So I'm actually very hopeful at this point in time um, about what we can do. And um, I think that that 2000, 2020 is going to be a year of change for Australia in our carbon position. But, you know, uh, I'm, I'm feeling very optimistic at the moment. We'll, we'll have to check back in in a few months' time. Um, Good. I mean, I have this I, – I hope that you're right, and I do think that you're right, that it can really – you know, catastrophic impacts can certainly catalyze change and focus people's minds. I think it's um, a tragedy if that's what it takes because certainly there's real suffering for people and places and for nature and the wildlife in the, in the bush that we're seeing these horrible reports about. So, you know – I don't want it to take a wake-up call everywhere in the world for people to realize that we're really in a climate crisis and we need to act accordingly. Yeah. So going back to your research and, you know, shaking things up, what's the most controversial aspect of your findings? Well, something that grabbed a lot of headlines, uh, although scientists kind of shrugged <laughs> in bafflement <laughs> and said, yeah, what's the news here, is... Um, 
we showed that it, of course, has a big climate impact if you choose to have a child. Mm. And the reason for that is creating a new person who, under today's conditions, is going to emit a lot of greenhouse gases in their lifetime. And then since we did a, a life cycle study, you know, for a, a for food, as I said, that would be kind of farm to fork. For a person, life cycle could go on for hundreds or thousands of years because it would include uh, diminishing returns or sort of responsibility, carbon legacy for not only some half of your children's emissions, but a quarter of your grandchildren's and an eighth of your great-great-grandchildren. So mm. creating uh, this carbon legacy does add up quite quickly. I think, of course, that's not the only way to think about having a child. I think it, it is valuable to realize that that's a big life decision, but I guess that's not news to most people who recognize that that's one of the biggest decisions they're making if and whether and when to become a parent or to have an additional child. So the carbon aspect is, is one of many um, considerations that can go into that decision. And I think it, something that often is misunderstood or doesn't get reported or people don't realize is that carbon footprint is, it is on an annual basis uh, because we did that to be fair for comparing activities. And that number is really huge if you sort of take many future generations emissions at today's levels and uh, kind of amortize it or put it all together on, on the current year over the parent's lifetime. But the thing is, those aren't emissions that are here today. If, if you you are a friend, you know, someone has just had a new baby, it's not that immediately mm. all these tons of CO2 were directly created. It's kind of a... a um, sort of a philosophical, you know, thought experiment of what kind of world is this child being born into and what kind of future could be created to make it better. So yeah. the key thing to remember is that um, it does have a big impact if you choose not to have a child. But we know that the those of us alive today are over-consuming the carbon budget fast enough that it, it's going to be gone in less than 10 years at current rates. Yeah. So we can't prevent that by just not creating, you know, a new person. We have to actually change our energy sources and reduce our overconsumption so that we can stabilize the climate. So those kind of changes are necessary no matter what. But it certainly is true that, you know, the more people there are, especially consuming fossil fuels and meat at a very high rate, the higher the emissions. And I think knowing about these choices is one thing. Doing is another, um, whether it is you know, avoiding air travel or having one less child. Uh, but, you know, these, these are small and big changes. What do you think, what do you find the most useful in terms of approaching um, how to actually implement some of these changes in life? What's going to help people actually do a mind shift and, and make these changes? Well, for me, what helped was seeing friends, people I knew and admired and respected leading the way. So putting these actions into practice and seeing that, oh, you know what? Their lives look pretty good. They have, they're having a, a, a good time. And I mean, this is possible and doable and we can actually do this today. So um, especially with flying, I was inspired by a friend who had stopped flying within Europe and showed that it was possible, you know, you could still be a productive scientist and go to conferences and have collaborations. And, um, that was, had kind of been holding me back, but seeing an example and putting into practice was really important. I think 
my sort of motto is to try to maximize meaning and minimize carbon. So I thought a lot about what is important to me and what I value, and I'm trying to put that into practice so that my actions reflect that. So an example was uh, my wedding in 2018. So my husband's from Canada. I, I grew up in California. We're lucky to have friends all over the world, but from a climate perspective, this is really tricky to be able to see people in person. Mm. So what we decided to do was we flew to Canada. We had a, a very small wedding with just our parents and siblings. Uh, and then we traveled by train through North America and we took the party to the people. So mm. we were hosted by friends in their homes or parks around uh, Canada and the U.S. We had 14 parties over you know, about a month. And that meant that we were having small intimate dinners with people or a chance to really have conversation with 10 or 12 people or something instead of, you know, 100 or 200 people uh, for one day or a weekend where you just get five minutes with everyone. So, and basically no one except for us was traveling. So mm -hmm. that was a way to maximize the meaning of time with loved one, getting to see people in places that we really care about and minimizing the carbon by doing that. I mean, that is a beautiful story. And uh, I love the motto, maximize meaning and minimize carbon. I might have to steal that one from you. Um, Please do. <laughs> um, you, look, you are one of those fabulous people I see as, you know, a climate warrior. Um, you're fighting the, the good but very long fight for positive change. What adds fuel to your belly and gives you hope that we can get this right? Well, I think at the, I mean, I, what would I say? I think on, on two levels, um, what's giving me energy is seeing people take action. That is what I think is the most important right now. And it's because we're having shifts in mindset, because we're realizing what is at stake for our lives and for all of humanity, basically, people are really waking up and starting to put action into practice. And that looks different around the world in different places and at different levels. But I think that's what makes me the most excited. One example that jumps to mind, last night I read about a professor in Canada at McGill University who actually quit his job over, had a tenure track uh, faculty position, which is not easy to get. He'd been there for 18 years. And he's been trying since 2012 to get McGill to divest from fossil fuels, to remove their financial support and investments in the fossil fuels that are driving climate breakdown. And after giving it his all for eight years, McGill voted for the third time not to divest. And he said, you know what? I'm divesting from McGill. I just cannot ethically mm. continue to work at this institution. And that's one example of one person, you know, stepping up and putting courage into practice. There are many more. I think the school strikes, especially in Australia, actually, I've seen some amazing work from the youth in Australia, which is really inspiring. And um, that is not to say that we can sit back and count on young people to save us. It's everyone's job, especially adults and those of us in power to do everything we can to actually bend the curve and stop destabilizing the climate, stop emitting carbon. Uh, but you know, there's so much energy and so much more momentum for that now. So I really think I do see a big change and that gives me a lot of hope, but boy, it is a race for <laughs> the next decade is really a race between two tipping points, between a catastrophic ecological tipping points and 
amazing social tipping points. And we have to really push and do everything we can to make sure it's the good kind of social tipping point into a safe and fair and climate just world, uh, rather than a, a world of ecological breakdown. That's not what we want to be heading for. Look, I think you and I could probably talk for another half hour, but that is a beautiful way to wrap up this conversation. It's been super educational and enlightening, and I hope that um, our listeners feel as empowered as I do to take control of my personal impact. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you for everything you're doing, and thanks to your listeners. Thanks, and um, bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. A reminder that the views of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily representative of the organisations they work for. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out to me on my website, sophietaylorprice.com, or on Instagram or Twitter. I really look forward to breaking down the big issues with you again next week. Until then, bye for now and see you on the flip side.